Well, my, 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 camping season is upon us. There exists a threat from anti-hunting groups to politicians trying to give our land away, and we won't stand for it. Those vast western landscapes provide the space for our wildlife to thrive and a place for hunters and anglers to fuel the fire that sparks their soul. In this show, we share our love of hunting, fishing, and conservation. Here, we provide the foundation to meet these threats through passion and the grit of the American outdoorsman. Welcome to the Western Huntsman Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this bonus episode of the Western Huntsman Podcast. This is Jim Huntsman, your host, and I'm coming at you from the Broken Town Studio right here in Hayden, Idaho. Guys, super happy you're here. Thanks for joining me. Uh, this is going to be a uh, an episode that is kind of out of the norm. Um, I'm running solo in this episode, and uh, it's kind of a special episode. With the Memorial Weekend coming up and summer coming up, just right around the corner, there is a lot of uh, excitement for camping season and camping. And there are a lot of people out there that just need kind of a basic breakdown of Camping 101. Maybe you're just getting into it. Maybe you've been doing it a while but uh, are not getting the full experience or the full enjoyment. This is mainly centered around like recreational camping because usually on this show, for those of you that found this episode because you're looking to, uh, you know, learn a little bit more about camping, whether you're camping in a tent or an RV or backpacking in or whatever the case is. Uh, this show, I, I, first off, welcome to this, this, uh, podcast. Usually my show is centered mainly around hunting and we talk about hunting and fishing and conservation efforts and legislation and, and things that go on within the hunting space. And so this is kind of a new thing, but I, I thought that, uh, well, I don't, I don't think this, I know that there are many people out there that don't have a lot of experience camping or they've never been taught the proper things about camping to to get the most out of your experience and the most enjoyment out of it. And we're going to cover some basics from, you know, setting up camps to, uh, you know, safety to camp camping ethics. And I think it's important that many of you really take this advice and, and learn from it and utilize it this summer as you, as you go out there, if you're taking your family, you know, on a camp. Um, generally I'm camping from about April into sometimes as late as around Thanksgiving. Uh, I have done a lot of winter camping as well, but for, for now, this is going to be for the, the, the folks that are recreationally camping. Um, and, and it applies to people that are going out to hunt camp, to, to, to go to a fish camp, to go to a, you know, whatever family reunion. I don't care what it is. This is going to be super helpful for a lot of you. So let me get into this by saying the following. So you kind of have an idea of who's uh, talking to you through the microphone here, especially for some of you new listeners where we're dropping this episode to a lot of places where we're going to have a lot of new listeners. So I've been camping my entire life. There has never been a point in my life where I wasn't camping. I've camped out of a backpack for months at a time. Not days, not weeks, literally months at a time living out of a backpack. I've camped in a tent. I've camped from a truck 
in crappy old trailers, in super fancy new trailers. I've camped in wall tents. I've camped in big boats, and I've camped in small boats, and I've camped from horseback. I've also camped in jungles, uh, deserts, high-altitude subalpine mountains, coniferous forests, and on four different continents throughout the world. I've camped in designated campgrounds, and I've camped in the backcountry in which I felt as if I was the first human to lay a footprint there. I've camped for recreation. I've camped for lake, river access. Uh, I've camped for good concert tickets. I've camped for hunting and for fishing. Uh, and I've camped in a couple of different war zones. As a Boy Scout, as a Marine, as a kid, as a dad. And don't laugh. Seriously, don't laugh at me. Some of you may not know this about me. But I've, I've even camped as a Civil War reenactor with authentic Civil War camp gear. I went on my first solo backpacking trip as a 12-year-old. Granted, it was in the mountains just kind of, you know, walking distance from the house, but I did it. I don't say all this to impress you, but I say it to impress upon you that I have a lifetime of camping experience to share. And one thing that I could tell you is this, I see a lot of new people getting into camping for various reasons, and I've noticed a lot of things that people do that ruin their experience or they put themselves or others in danger. Or, the worst yet, the worst sin yet, is they just flat out ruin other campers' experience around them. Do a lack of knowledge and just some basic camping ethics. So if you're interested in learning, stay tuned. Because camping isn't for everyone. I, and just so you guys know, uh, I know I've, I've mentioned that I have camped in designated campgrounds. I don't do that anymore very rarely it has to be something very specific for us to go pull a trailer or take a tent or whatever to to like a designated paid campground we just don't do that we i am going to be mainly talking to those of you who kind of go off the beaten path and again this this could include taking your giant 45 foot ninety thousand dollar uh fifth wheel back up there or it could just be somebody, you know, in a, in a Prius taking a tent into the into the woods somewhere. But the point being is, I'm going to be talking to you campers that are, are at dry camps. These are national forest, public land kind of camp areas. There's no picnic table. There's no electricity. There's no bathrooms. There's no running water. This is primitive camping, and that is what this discussion is going to be centered around. And don't take me the wrong way. I'm not against anybody using campgrounds in fact i like it when people go to campgrounds in designated areas and they pay their fee and they pull up and hook up to water and all that kind of stuff you know why i like that is because it keeps people out of the areas that i like to camp and let's face it the woods are getting crowded so if i'm not against you if if that's the type of camping you want to do you'll still actually get a lot out of this episode uh, because there's there's things that are going to apply to that style of camping as well but for me and who i'm talking about I enjoy, you know, one of the main purposes of going camping, what I enjoy is, is getting away, right? I don't, I don't have to deal with neighbors and grocery stores and work and cell phone service and things like that. If you're one of those folks that just want to recreationally go find a destination that has a campground and pull your trailer in there or set up a tent or something like that, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's just not the type of camping that I do and it's just not the type of camping that I'm going to talk about 
because it's kind of like it's not it's not really camping. You're not getting away from people. You're not getting out into the wild. And that's kind of what this discussion is going to be centered around. I know. I shouldn't have said that. You're, you, you are camping. Um, hopefully your feelings aren't hurt about that. But <laughs> that's just my take on it, guys. So we're going to start this discussion with uh, basically picking a spot. Now, remember, what what, I, what we're talking about here is we're going into like the national forest or on some BLM land or state land or wherever you're off the beaten path. You're, you're usually up on a dirt road and you're looking for areas that are cleared out to be able to set up a tent or park your trailer. Let's let's talk about the trailers first. So I, I have been I bought my first camping trailer. It was a 1966. I don't even remember the name brand, uh, but this was uh, over 20 years ago. I have a lot of experience with trailers. I actually, I, I have a thing for trailers. I like camping trailers. Um, and I've had all sorts. I've had tent trailers. I've had just bumper pole and I've had fifth wheels. The huge advantage to a trailer, whether it is a tent trailer or a, you know, a, a fifth wheel or, or the in-between there, the, the huge advantage you're going to have with a trailer is going to be the, the amount of time you'll be able to spend out there. Now, I know there's people out there that are like, well, I take a wall tent out and I stay for 10 days at a time or 14 days at a time. Me too. I've done that too. But we're talking about recreational camping. And the nice thing with trailers is everything is always in your trailer, right? You could take it out. You've got uh, cover from the elements. You've usually got a bathroom in there for, uh, you know, my wife and my daughters. They love having that. Um, it doesn't matter. It just makes it so that it is easier I'm not saying it's the only way to make it happen, but it is easier to stay long periods of time. And so 10 to 14 day camping trips for us, for my family, my wife and my girls, that's not abnormal. We do two or three of those a year. And then we also do uh, several, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 12 other trips that are anywhere from two nights to, you know, four nights, just shorter trips. So the point being, if you're choosing to go with the trailer route, I'm just going to call everything a trailer, okay? I don't care if it's a motorhome. I don't care if it's a tent trailer. It, it just, uh, we're just going to, for the sake of simplicity, we're going to say trailer. Um, selecting a spot is going to, you're going to need a little bit more um, finesse than you would say if you were pulling up with a tent, okay? You want to make sure that the spot is basically level. It doesn't, obviously, when you're camping, you're not going to, it's not, we're not pulling up to a, you know, a concrete driveway pad or anything like that. But you don't also want to look at a spot and think that if it's a 45-degree angle you're parking this trailer on, and, and some of this might sound obvious, but I'm telling you, I, the, the reason I've picked the topics that I'm talking about on this particular episode is because it is things that I see people do on a consistent basis, and I want to help you. So you're just looking for somewhere that's, that's basically flat, somewhere that you can maybe dig a couple of holes to drop the you know left side of your axles uh, or your tires on your trailer into to kind of level out the trailer, and it's not going to be a ton of work. Remember, camping is a getaway. Camping is a vacation. Camping is a thing that you do to get away and relax and enjoy uh, the outdoors. It is not something that you want to turn into a freaking prison work party, okay? I see that all the time. So just make sure you've got a good spot. It's it's basically leveled out, and when you're when you're talking about a trailer and pulling in, it is imperative before you just pull off the main dirt road or whatever you're on that you know what's down there. 
Okay. Don't just pull in there with a 40 foot trailer and, and hope there's a spot for you to turn around because that's not always the case. And trust me, I've learned that from experience. So park on the side of the road and walk down the, walk down the, the little road or whatever that's going to go to the camp spot and make sure you have enough room to crank and turn that trailer around and get it out. Because I can't tell you how many times, well, I can, it was three. There's been three times when I made the mistake of just assuming I'd be okay. And I pulled in there and it took some serious maneuvering to get that thing out. Uh, and in, to include one time where I damaged my trailer. So that's, that part's really in, uh, really important, making sure you know where you're pulling into because a lot of these wooded areas you're not going to be able to see. Somewhat flat, free from potential timber falls. We're going to talk a lot more about this in a few minutes. But um, you need to look at the trees around the spot. And this does, I don't care if you're in a trailer or you're in a tent. We're going to talk a little bit, again, more about this, but there's something called a, a black, or a, I'm sorry, a widowmaker tree. And uh, it's a safety issue, and so you're gonna want you're gonna learn a little bit more about that in just a minute. So um, other other just basic things, you know, setting up a tent to avoid rain puddling up. That that part's pretty important. I see a lot of people they like try to dig these little trenches around the, uh, and I've done it around their tent when it's raining to try to divert the water from kind of puddling up right there at the tent. The way to avoid that because those trenches don't work very well. The way to avoid that is to look for a small flat rise, the highest ground you could find to set that tent on. Make sure it's not at the bottom of like some kind of drop off or something where, where the water's going to flow down the hill and right into your tent area. More on that topic a little bit later. So picking a spot as obvious as it may seem, you want to have a spot that's kind of protected. It's private. It's secluded. You can get your trailer in and out. You have spots to set up your tent where it's not going to be in like a giant mud puddle if it rains uh, and free from debris that may fall in a windstorm. Again, more on that later. Since we're kind of on the topic of trailers, I wouldn't be doing my job as a camping podcast episode host if we didn't discuss just briefly on towing. Towing is one of those things that shouldn't be that big of a deal. And I feel like a lot of people overly complicate it. They either do that or they don't think enough about it. And what, what I really want to focus on, one thing that really bothers me when I'm out on the highway, because so I drive a lot for work, uh, for, for my day job. I'm, I'm on the road a lot. In fact, well, prior to COVID-19, uh, this whole coronavirus thing, um, I was averaging about 500 miles a week, which, you know, for some of you may not sound like much, but for somebody that, you know, is home every night, that's a lot of driving. So um, on, on that point, I one thing that really bothers me is people not choosing the right towing vehicles uh, with what they're towing. Um, this this happens all too often. Uh, let me explain one thing. A V8 does not mean that you could tow anything. Okay, a V8 motor in your rig does not mean that you could tow anything. Regardless of what the RV sales guy tells you, don't tow 30-foot trailers with small, short wheelbase SUVs. I'm going to tell you a little story. I don't know exactly where you're at listening to this and what state you're in. I'm in Idaho. I'm in the northern panhandle of Idaho. So I drive in Idaho, Montana, Washington, and Oregon quite a bit. Point being, I'm cruising along I-90 in central Washington. And if you've never been to central Washington, one thing about central Washington um, because a lot of people, when they think of Washington, because it's the evergreen state, it's just, you know, mountainous and green and 
beautiful, which it is in, in many parts of the state, but there's kind of like this central Washington part that is uh, super wide open, uh, almost prairie-like, very arid, uh, full of agriculture and, and things like that. Uh, and, and what I'm trying to get at is I could see a long ways in front of me. I'm cruising down I-90 and I am heading uh, towards the Seattle area in a, in a way. And I'm still on this, this flat, you know, kind of open area of, of central Washington. Coming at me, oncoming traffic, they're uh, over the rise probably about a mile out. This Ford Explorer with a V8 motor comes cresting over the hill. And the guy is pulling this 28-foot, probably 7,000 to 8,000 pound camping trailer behind him. Now, luckily he had a stabilizer because that's what the RV salespeople will tell you, right? A stabilizer or an equalizer hitch, depending on what you call it. It's like called different things in different parts of the country, I know. Um, he's got this equalizer because the RV salesman told him if he's got that and he, an V8, he could pull anything, right? No. He comes, crests over the hill, and he starts coming down the other side. And all of a sudden, I can see, at this point, he's about a half a mile out. That trailer starts fishtailing. Must have caught a wind or something just wasn't adding up for it, and it started to kind of fishtail, started swaying. Well, this sway made the driver do what most drivers think they need to do, which is kind of step on the brakes and slow down, which that's sometimes good. Sometimes it even helps to speed up. I, there's, I don't have any kind of scientific data on that, but I've had a few trailers fishtail on me. His trailer starts getting a lot more dramatic. The, the sway begins to get really bad, and all of a sudden all the cars around him they start like speeding up or slamming on their brakes to get out of the way because at this point this trailer is swaying into two lanes. Well, it didn't get any better. The, the sway was so bad and the wheelbase on that vehicle was so short that it started swaying the back end of the vehicle. The trailer went left, pulled the back end of the Ford Explorer to the left and both vehicles, the, the camping trailer and the Ford Explorer, began rolling down the rest of the way of this hill. The trailer came disconnected and basically exploded and shattered all over the freeway because these things, when you when you, you kind of boil it down, they're just a bunch of sticks thrown together with fiberglass on the outside, right? They're not, it's not like they're bomb-proof. This thing just explodes all over the freeway. I slam on my brakes and pull into the medium and I jump out and I run over. Finally, the Explorer kind of comes to a stop uh, and it's upside down. And I go running over there, and uh, there's a few other people running over there to make sure they're okay and, and see what we could do to help. Turns out, the good news is, they were just kind of bruised up. We kind of helped them get out of the vehicle and get to the side. But the, the key takeaway with this story, guys, is that is not the only time I've seen that in, in my many miles on the, on the road out there. You really need to do your research on what your vehicle's towing capacity is. Because I can't tell you how many times I saw a Jeep Wrangler, you know, those really short buggers cruising around, pulling like a, a 25 foot boat. That That's insane. And a lot of people might roll their eyes when they hear that. But if you want to be safe, you need to do the research. You have to know what your vehicle's towing capacity is. 
and the 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 rating on the vehicle is going to be on the door plate where like your serial number and all that kind of stuff is. The or I'm sorry, not serial number, VIN number of the vehicle. Uh, it's going to tell you what your GVWR uh, on a trailer is. And I, you guys need to do your own research on this because I don't ever want somebody to come back and say, well, Jim on the Western Huntsman podcast told me to check my GVWR and I was fine. No, you need to do your own research. Basically, a GVWR rating does not tell you exactly how much weight you can tow. That just tells you what the weight of your vehicle is loaded down and maxed out to include only the bumper weight of the trailer. It doesn't mean it's that's what the trailer weight is. So anyway, do your own research on that and figure that out because I, I, that is super important. Towing is one of those things that if done correctly, it's easy. But if, if you don't know anything about towing, don't just go grab whatever SUV you have and think that because the trailer uh, that you're looking at buying says it's a lightweight trailer, um, you know, what do they, what do they call those these days? The light, it's the, the Keystone light trailer or the, you know, the, the Coleman light and, and half ton towable and blah, blah, blah. Keep in mind that the trailer and RV industry is in it to sell you trailers and RVs. And I'm not, you know, I, I have a trailer. I like buying trailers. I like using trailers, all that kind of stuff. So I'm not talking negatively about them, but, uh, I do want you to be aware that it, because somebody is trying to sell you a trailer does not mean that they are an expert in trailers and towing. And I have heard it a million times when I'm on a trailer lot, these sales guys, they, for the most part, just want to, they just want to sell you a trailer. So you just got to be mindful as to, you cannot tow as much as a lot of times they will tell you you can tow safely. Does that mean you can't get it out of the lot and get it home, you know, five miles or whatever? No, you can, you, I'm sure that's going to be fine. But when you're pulling over a pass, a steep pass, and you're coming down the other side and you're on the freeway and there's crosswinds and semis and all these other things, high speeds, that is where the, uh, that's where the problems are going to arise. I've seen, I've seen flipped over trailers many times and almost every single time it is because it is too much trailer for that vehicle. So just be warned. It is not a great idea. The really, the, the only way to be super confident in what you're, what you're pulling and, and your, you know, uh, capacity is, is going to be okay is if you have a three quarter ton truck or, or, or bigger. I mean, if you, if you've got a three quarter ton truck or like a three quarter ton suburban or something along those ton lines or a one ton, obviously you're going to be in pretty good shape with most, uh, most trailers out there on the market. Um, half tons. I know that the towing capacity has gone way up lately and, uh, you can safely pull with a half ton, uh, a fairly, you know, decent sized trailer these days. Uh, just keeping in mind that that does not mean that you need to be pushing the limits and going 85 miles an hour down the freeway with these uh, with these trailers on the back of you because you really those trailers in a lot of cases are going to outweigh the vehicle and that's that's kind of it can be problematic. So anyway, that is uh, that is for you guys to decide and and determine. Don't trust an RV salesman on everything when it comes to towing uh, and even sometimes in the key factors of of what is in the trailer. So. Um, I've just, uh, yeah, you can see, you can see, I have a little bit of disdain for RV salespeople. Anyway, we'll leave it at that. Setting up your camp. Okay. I want to talk about setting up your camp. And, um, one of the things, if you guys are on like Facebook, you'll, you'll, you'll see this a lot, this meme that talks about, you know, uh, apologizing to your wife for the way you yelled, uh, while backing the trailer into your camp spot or whatever. It's, it's pretty funny. 
guys, you need a system down for that kind of stuff. And if you're pulling up to a camp spot and you've got uh, a truck with all your equipment, um, you know, your tent, your, you know, canopies, your camp chairs, your coolers, all that kind of stuff, you guys should have a system down. And people are always amazed when they come camping with my wife and I, because we have this insanely efficient system down. We pull into camp and we both get out. We determine where we want the trailer. At that point, she stays out. I get, I get in the truck and I start backing the trailer into the spot. Now, keep in mind, I've been backing trailers up for a long time. So I, I know if, if, if it's like your first few times, it, it trust me, that will get a lot easier with time. The more trailers you back up, the easier it is for you to get that thing right where you want it. So we have that system. We get it backed into the spot. It takes me less than five minutes to make sure the trailer is level and off of the truck. And then I put the stabilizers down and then we have a, a, an organized system as to like we have designated things. So I take care of all the outside stuff. I get the, I, I get everything set up on the outside. I get the stabilizers out, the awnings out, the, the camp stove set up, the canopy set up, all the camp chairs set up while she's busy inside getting all that stuff. You know, a lot of, we, when we're packing for a camp trip, uh, we put a lot of stuff on the bunk beds or the bed or the, the table. She gets all that set up and, and puts everything outside that needs to go outside. The point is we have a, we have a really solid system so that within, and this is what blows people away. Within 30 minutes of pulling to a camp spot, my wife and I are camping. We're no longer setting up. We are camping. We've usually got an ice cold beer cracked or pouring a cocktail or we're putting our suits on to go swim down the river. While people we camp with at times, it has taken them like two, three hours for this. This process is insane. And it, it was the same way when we just tent camped. Okay, when we're talking about packing up to leave, it's the same kind of thing. You want to have people in designated spots or designated tasks to get everything ready. Again, my wife, she takes care of all the inside stuff and she gets the trailer all clean. And then I get everything ready and packaged to load, right? And then we stage, I stage everything kind of right by the trailer. And as she's doing that, I'm doing that. It takes us about the same amount of time. Now, pack up is generally a little bit more than a half an hour because the setup's a lot. It, it does seem to go a lot smoother. And we're a little bit more excited to be there where when you're packing up, it's like, oh, man, I got to go home. And so you kind of move a little bit slower. Uh, but the point is everything is staged and ready. And then once she's done on the inside, I'm ready on the outside. We come together. We load everything at the same time. Everything has its spot, whether it goes in the trailer or the truck. And we're loaded up and on the road generally in less than an hour. The, the key takeaway on that guys is you're going to get the most time actually camping and enjoying your trip. You're not spending three hours setting your camp up and you're not spending a half a day packing it back up. You gotta, you gotta think about this stuff and just plan it out. It, it'll, it'll make your life a lot better and it'll make the experience a lot more enjoyable. We generally have three main areas in a campground. We have our cooking area, the fire pit area, and like the cooler and gear area. And the reason for that is because if you have kind of these designated areas in your camp, nobody's going to, A, break a shin while they're walking when, it, when the sun goes down and knock their shin on a cooler or something. Uh, but B, it just kind of makes it a little bit more functional. So I set up an outside kitchen cooking area. I've got one of those Camp Chef uh, with the grill stove on, on, you know, that, uh, or I'm sorry, griddle on top. So uh, we can, you know, cook everything on that. I also bring a uh, charcoal barbecue. 
Um, and, and that's one area and I usually put that under a canopy in case it rains. I set up a canopy and set up a cooking area, put a, like a battery powered lantern in the middle of it. And that's one area. And then the other area, the cooler and the gear and the equipment and all that kind of stuff is all stuffed over and, and stored by the trailer. So it's not out in the sun, uh, specifically the coolers. I, I put everything kind of where it's functional by the trailer or the tent, depending on which way I'm camping. Cause I still do tent camp. Um, but the, uh, the point with that is it's functional that way. And during the day, uh, when you have the kids out there, they get kind of used to where everything's at. So they're not tripping and falling at night if, if you don't have enough light set up. So, um, and then we have the fire area, which is where the parties happen. Right. And we're going to talk a lot about fires here in just a second. So, um, that's kind of how we do it. If you're running a generator, which if you are camping in the primitive way, like we camp, um, we, you, you really want to be mindful as to where the generator goes for two reasons. One generators, unless you have one of those really expensive, but very nice Honda generators, they're, uh, they're going to be really loud. And so I have a 30 amp extension cord that I run 50 feet away from the camp, but where I set the generator is going to be free of grass and brush. And you're going to find out why in a little bit, but for obvious reasons, if it's dry outside, the exhaust on the generator can absolutely start a fire. So you want to keep that in mind and make sure you've got about, I usually like my rule of thumb is about three feet of clearance around the entire generator. Uh, a lot of generators these days will tell you, you know, what kind of radius you, th you, you should have. But, um, Another rule of thumb, if you camp a lot and you have a generator, make sure you're covering your generator if it's raining and they have those generator tents, or you can like rig up a tarp over the top of it. Make sure you got enough clearance that the heat's not going to ruin the tarp. The point to that is you can actually get a lot of rust and deterioration on that generator in a short amount of time and only like one rainstorm. So just keep that in mind. Keeping the water off of that generator is always a good idea. All right. We have picked out a camp spot and we've set up camp. Now we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of this situation. The next thing I always focus on when uh, I've set up camp is I want to, uh, if I didn't bring a bunch of firewood with me, uh, I want to, I want to get a bunch of firewood. And this is one of those things that I see a lot of people mess up and it ruins their camp out. And it also ruins the forest. So we're going to talk about gathering firewood real quick and then lighting the right kind of fire. I recommend getting very familiar with a chainsaw and a, and an ax. Like you're camping, you got to, you got to know how to use this, this equipment. It's going to make your life a lot easier and you don't need some huge, you know, um, really expensive chainsaw. If you're just kind of a very casual, very infrequent camper, then just get you the, the a, a chainsaw from Home Depot that's like a 16 incher and that'll that'll do the job. I think they're 100 bucks, 150 bucks or something like that, uh, and they're and they're super easy to use. If you're a more frequent camper like I am, uh, get you a little more heavy duty. I I like a, a minimum of a 20 inch chainsaw for what I do, but uh, that's that's totally you know your call. Uh, the point being, what are you cutting and what are you not cutting with that chainsaw? Last year. I'm up camped up on the, uh, on a river and somebody pulls up kind of, you know, close to our spot or whatever. And I hear him ripping off with his chainsaw and this big live tree comes down, big green pine tree falls. I could see the tip from my camp spot. I kind of walk over there and I'm kind of peeking at them. They'd cut down a live tree and then we're in the process 
of cutting that tree, uh, delimbing it, and, and cutting it into logs. I don't know who needs to hear this, but live trees don't burn, with the exception of if there is a savage forest fire going on. And even then, even then, sometimes they don't burn. When you're looking for firewood, um, live trees are not an option. First of all, it is against the law in most areas to cut down a live tree without the proper permits. When when you have just like a, like I'll, I'll give an example. In the state of Idaho, you can get a, a wood uh, gathering permit. That means you can go up and cut dead trees, not um, not live trees. You cannot cut live trees. You're, and in most cases, you, you are not allowed to be cutting down live trees. And you shouldn't be anyway because they don't burn. Live trees just don't burn in a campfire pit. Okay, so uh, I hope that that helps and solves some problems for a lot of people because apparently there are folks out there that are under the impression that you just cut down a live tree and cut it up and that's firewood. No, it's not only illegal, it's ineffective. The, uh, the second part to that is when, when you're looking at, at the kind of wood that you want to cut up, I always kind of, and it's like a whole family affair. We always jump in the truck and we're like, okay, let's go wood hunting. Let's go cut some trees down, or uh, cut some trees and uh, get some logs and, and bring them back to camp and, and dad will split them. I'm always looking for that those those that fallen timber that has almost like a silver grayish tone to it if you're in a pine forest. Okay, this is going to change now. If you're listening to this in Arizona or uh, you, you know somewhere where there's not a lot of uh, timber, that it's it's going to change for you. <clears throat> the way I gathered wood, for example, in Utah, is different than I gather wood in Idaho, and the way I gathered wood when I camped in North Carolina is different than I than it was when I camped in Washington. You know, the, so it just changes. But what I'm generally looking for, kind of a universal rule of thumb, is timber that looks like it's been down for over a year, and it's kind of got it's most of the barks off it, and it's got like a grayish or silverish undertone color to it, and that's what you're looking for. The other thing is is when you're looking at these logs and you cut a log, is it light? Or is it heavy? If you've ever weighed the difference between, let's say you put a dead log in your left hand and a, and a live log in your right hand, there is a huge weight difference. That's because all the moisture is out. It's called seasoning firewood. And you want nice seasoned wood, which in most cases, depending on the climate you're in, uh, for, for me, it is for, for where we're at in northern Idaho, uh, you need a good year of that tree to be dead before it's ready to burn. I hope that explains to a lot of people that uh, I've seen up there cutting live trees, that they're not going to burn. And uh, again, it's just, it's against the law in most cases. So um, let's talk about building a fire real quick. Building a fire. Here's another big mistake I see all the time. I see people, they'll cut down the live trees or uh, they'll even use dead trees and, uh, and they log them out and then they sometimes split them and sometimes don't. Guys, in order for a log round to burn, you have to have super, super hot coals. That is not how you start a fire. The key to a good fire is the smaller the kindling you use and the the hotter that thing's going to get and faster that those coals are going to get hot down in the bottom. So you want to start small, start very small. And when I say small, I mean the kind of fire that would not keep you warm if it stayed that small. Start, if you just take some, uh, now I know there's a lot of different ways to do this. There's, there's a lot of really good fire starters out there on the market actually. And you can usually get them at like a grocery store or Home Depot or Walmart or wherever. Get you a fire starter 
and you put little teeny twigs, not much bigger than a toothpick on that. Okay. Then you get twigs that are about double that size. And then you get twigs that are double that size. And then you get chunks of kindling that you've cut down with your ax, uh, that are about double that size. And you build it up from there, allow the fire to get nice and warm and then keep adding bigger, uh, chunks of wood until you get into the actual split logs. I do not personally recommend putting full rounds in a fire. Uh, they just don't burn very well. You're, uh, the, the, the thing that you got to remember with a fire is a fire requires a lot of oxygen. And so when you've got this big log round, it's, it's kind of stifling that oxygen flow and it's just not going to burn very hot and very well for you. You're just going to get a bunch of smoke and smoldering. So always keep that in mind. Start small. Don't put a bunch of log rounds on or, or these giant chunks of split wood onto the fire, throw gas on it and expect it to light. That's not how it happens. The bigger the wood you're putting in the fire requires more uh, existing heat in the coals. And how you get that existing heat in the coals is starting with kindling, getting that fire nice and hot with kindling and smaller pieces of wood and building up to logs. That process sounds complicated, but it's not. That should only take you about five minutes before you're putting actual logs on the on the fire. Split logs, by the way. Again, I don't I don't recommend putting rounds on the fire. They just don't burn very well. So, okay, we're going to move into the safety side of everything. So we've gotten to the point where we're all set up at camp, right? We picked a spot, we're set up, and we got a fire going. Now we're going to talk about the safety all in all of being there at camp and, and some things that I've seen in the last few years that have caused me some great concern and have led me to doing this episode on my podcast. You guys remember when I kicked off this episode, I told you I was going to tell you a little bit more about what a what a widow maker is in a tree. So they're they're not always super easy to identify, but a widow maker is a tree that either the entire tree can fall at any moment because it's dead or damaged, or it could be like the top half of a tree, which is what is most commonly referred to as a widow maker, where the slightest gust of wind at any moment could knock the top half of that tree off and that can come down. Do you also remember how I was discussing how RVs are nothing but a bunch of sticks thrown together with fiberglass on the outside? They don't stop a fallen tree. It will crush you. And this happens every year. Every single year, I read a story of a widowmaker type kind of tree that has fallen on either a tent trailer or a wall tent or somebody in their backpacking tent or somebody in a trailer. Uh, it happened here locally at a at this amusement park where they had these big pine trees that uh, the windstorm came in and, and killed somebody. These trees are a serious, serious thing that you really have to pay attention to. When we're when you when you're pulling into a spot, you really want to be able to identify the dead tree, which is uh, you know everybody listening to this, I'm sure knows how to identify a dead tree versus a live tree. If you don't, you probably shouldn't go camping. All right, but we need to be able to identify those. You also need to be able to look at a tree and understand if it's perhaps damaged halfway up. Maybe it got struck by lightning, or maybe. A fallen tree a year ago slammed into it halfway down and kind of took out a big chunk of it or whatever. I've got one of those in my yard right now. Um, you you have to kind of use a lot of common sense and your own judgment and gut feeling about this. 
if you have one tree that is just, it's not looking right. It's leaning. It's got quite the lean to it. And, and you, you want to put your tent underneath there. Don't, don't be tempted to put your tent underneath there. I know that there is like this nostalgic thing about camp spots that have a lot of timber around. You're, you feel like you're right in the trees and, and there's, you know, pine needles on the ground and you, the sun barely even pokes through because of, of all the, the growth over, over the top. It's like a canopied forest. That's great in a lot of circumstances, but it's really hard to identify trees that could potentially fall on your tent or your trailer. So that's what I am I am trying to put out as a as a really solid warning is make sure you're identifying the trees that could be potential risks of of falling and uh, you know killing somebody um, or hurting somebody or injuring or maiming or whatever. Um, what one thing that it's kind of a, a disclosure I should I should mention is sometimes the the trees that come down are not recognizable as uh, potential hazards. I have so I just for reference, guys, I live on about five acres of uh, heavy forested country here in, in Idaho. So I'm very familiar with trees and and how they come down and and when they fall and it's kind of a headache sometimes dealing with all. It's like a full time job dealing with the, the the forest we live in here, but. The point is, is a lot of times a windstorm will come through and the trees that I expected the wind to knock down, uh, stood and the trees I never thought in a million years, a windstorm would knock over fell. And so there's, there's like a science to identifying those kind of dangerous trees. And there's also sheer, um, dumb luck with that. So, uh, my biggest thing with this is if you can identify those dangerous looking trees and they're, they're usually going to be dead. They're going to be leaning. They're going to be damaged. They're going to have some sort of, they're going to give you some sort of gut feeling, especially the more you camp about what's dangerous and what's not, because I really don't want to read articles ever again about a camper that was killed or a hunter that was killed because they set up their tent underneath a tree and, uh, the tree came down on them in the middle of the night. Um, happens all the time. Uh, and don't think that a trailer, I don't care how new and how much you paid for that trailer, it's not going to stop a 20-inch round tree in diameter that falls from 80 feet in the air. It's just not going to stop that. So it's just something to really keep in mind and really watch. That's a big safety aspect. Um, I, I put some bullet points here of things that have happened to me uh, that I think are going to help you guys so, so we can avoid that hopefully in the future here. So let's get into another little interesting thing that a lot of people might not think about. Charcoal. I came out of my trailer and it was still dark outside because it was elk camp and it was early September. The night before I had my whole family up there for elk. My elk hunting is a, is a, is a family affair in my family. We all go up. The night before, I had barbecued chicken. And I'd take a little barbecue stove up there that's kind of portable um, or grill, set it up, and I use one of those charcoal chimneys. The, if you've never used a charcoal chimney, um, they're, they're super handy. Whether you're cooking with a Dutch oven or, or you're actually using a charcoal grill, get you a chimney because it's going to light the charcoal a lot better for you than just piling it up and trying to light it that way. Anyway. I come out in the morning, it's dark, and what's on my mind is I want to have a cup of coffee and head out into the elk woods and get ready. But I was smelling smoke. I was smelling like smoldering. I was like, it was super confusing too because I remember vividly 
taking buckets of water and putting the fire out the night before, which is something we always do. We always make sure the fire is completely out before going to bed. But the smell of uh, the, the ash and the, and the smoke and the smoldering was bothering me. I went over and looked at the fire pit. I noticed, okay, there's nothing coming out of there. And then I kind of glanced over at our cooking area and I noticed the ground was smoking a little bit. So I walk over there and I take my flashlight and I'm kind of peeking down at the ground, wondering where the smoke's coming from. And I move some dirt around and some brush. And you know what it was? A root that was buried under the dirt, just barely had gotten hot enough from my chimney, my charcoal chimney, that it had basically started this underground smoking, smoldering root. It had burned like two feet of root throughout the night. The root was about two and a half, three inches in diameter, and it was all but on fire. It was super hot. I poured a bunch of water on it to get it out. Had I not noticed that, that could have started a forest fire. The point of that story, guys, is to remember when, because uh, a lot of people will grill something with a charcoal grill, and then they'll kind of dump the, ash, the the charcoal out on the ground or something like that um, instead of in the fire pit. Uh, or when they're using one of the charcoal chimneys, they don't realize how much heat that generates as the charcoal is heating up, and it can light underground fires. Underground fires are a real thing, and it can happen underneath a fire pit, and it can happen underneath a charcoal grill. It can happen underneath a charcoal chimney. So the, I told you that story so that it sticks in your mind that when you are cooking with charcoal or you are dealing with a campfire pit, keep in mind, if especially if um, you get to a camping spot and you're like the first one to camp there. And so you made the fire ring and you kind of dug it out and all that kind of stuff. If there are roots in there, those can potentially be super hazardous in terms of lighting a fire underground that will spread. And it could be weeks later that this thing bursts into flames somewhere down the line and you've started a forest fire inadvertently and not knowing about it. Hopefully you guys remember that. Next point, leaving food out. Um... <laughs> this kind of goes without saying in a lot of cases, but uh, where I camp, we have uh, wolves, we have mountain lions, we have coyotes, we have uh, black bears, we have grizzly bears. We have all of it. Um, if it can hurt you, we have it here in, in Idaho. And the uh, the thing with, with leaving food out is the, you know, like let's take a bear, for example. Bears can smell a lot further away than you can, miles. They can smell, if you cook steak, and let's say you cook six steaks and you guys only eat five of them. Don't leave that extra steak out on the grill for overnight or whatever. Uh, you really want to put the food away. If you are backpacking into bear country, um, one thing that is widely recommended, uh, not just from me, but you, you kind of, when you're, when you're in bear country, specifically grizzly bear, I personally, I don't worry a lot about black bears, but I know a lot of people do. Um, and, and you probably should. So, uh, a black bear can come into in, into camp and will come into camp if there is a food source that it is interested in, and it happens all of the time. So um, when you're backpacked in, okay, that's what we were talking about, backpacking in, and you've got, you, you know, you're in bear country, grizzly or black bear. What What is widely recommended is you set up your camp, and then about 100 yards away is where you set your food area. So you do not eat in camp at all, not even 
Don't even bring a Snickers bar over there and keep the wrapper in your tent. Every food item is placed 100 yards at a minimum from your sleeping area. And that's where you store your food and hang it in a tree. Uh, and that's where you cook, that's where you eat, and that's where you leave everything and clean everything as much as possible, and that'll help. One time I'm camped. In this case, I'm in my little red, I had a red F-150 pickup, and I had a, that uh, this old Bermuda camouflage-looking ugly trailer. It was like a 1960-something. It was <laughs> uglier than dirt. And uh, I'm, I'm camped. I've got my dog and uh, my dogs are actually. I had both both my dogs on this trip, and I put their food in a bag in the back of my truck. And so I wake up. My my dogs start growling, and they're in the trailer with me. And I'm alone on this. This is a, one of the solo hunting trips. I think I was deer hunting or something. But um, all of a sudden, my dogs start growling, and I get up out of bed, and I can hear some ruffling around outside. So I grab my flashlight. And I kind of step out of the door and I'm, I'm kind of shining my light around the camp and it's, you know, two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. And all of a sudden I see these beady little eyes and what had happened. And I, I kept seeing them. There's like multiple beady little eyes, not just one set. What happened was there was all these raccoons that had found the dog food in the back of my truck. And because I didn't put it away, right. This was years ago. I didn't put it away. Right. So, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking and I'm, I, I kind of walk out towards them. I'm telling them to scat and get away. And, and, uh, as I shine my light into the back of my truck, there's another raccoon and another set of eyes of which I thought was a raccoon. No, the other set of eyes was a cub, a black bear cub. I don't know where mom was, but it was a black bear cub in the back of my truck. And I'm out there, no weapon, no nothing. And I'm like, crap. I'm kind of in trouble because if, you know, I, I purposely didn't leave my dogs out because I didn't know what was out there. So I go running back into my trailer and came back out and fired some shots into the air with a, a pistol I had to scare off all the wildlife. And then I grabbed that bag of dog food and put it back in my trailer. No other problems the rest of the night. Tell you these stories because I, a lot of the stuff I'm, I'm trying to teach people on this podcast episode is from personal experience. You know, that, that could have been a very dangerous situation, especially because I assume they were all raccoons. They weren't. There was bears in the area and I don't know where brother and sister cub was and I don't know where mama bear was, but uh, I know that if there's a bear cub around, definitely there is a mama bear around. So uh, just keep that in mind. Okay. There's another thing that I, I think is really important for people to know. Uh, and this is going to pertain to those of you who are camping in like more of an arid or desert uh, sandstone kind of kind of country. I'm talking southern Colorado, southern Utah, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, you know, these, these places. Uh, and it, it doesn't necessarily have to be those kind of places, but this is where it is going to be the most prominent. If you're camping and specifically tent camping, uh, I'm going to tell you guys quite the story here. Remember how I told you that I went on my first backpacking solo camping trip when I was like 12. And I've been I've been camping my entire life and it's something that I'm always drawn to. I think about it all the time. I love camping. I love it almost as much as I love hunting and fishing. But I love camping. 
by the time it's it's the late 90s and I'm just getting out of my junior year of high school and you know it's that summer in between it's like June in between junior year and senior year of high school uh, I didn't wait around for my family to go camping if, if they didn't want to go camping that weekend I'd go by myself so I did at this time I had a little hatchback Ford Escort car <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen those or not but uh, the, the, I don't know I don't even know if they still have those around I'd be curious to know if they have those but uh, I, I had this little red Ford Escort and I loaded it down with all my camp gear tent you know cooler whatever I go up to this area, uh, or I, I'm sorry, I drive south, and this is in Utah. I drive way down south, and uh, this is we're getting into like this sandstone deserty kind of country in the in the same neck of the woods. If you guys are familiar with Moab, Utah, it's kind of that kind of country. And I'm I'm down there, and this this was back when gas was you know what a dollar dollar fifty a gallon, and for a high school kid. I could fill that car up with a little four-cylinder motor and I can go a long ways on not very much money. Drove down there. By the time I got to this area that I wanted to camp, it, it, it was getting dark. It was actually getting really dark. It was almost all the way dark by the time I found this spot to camp at. And I parked the car and shined my headlights in front of me and it was like you kind of, where my car was, it was kind of on the edge where you walk down like this 20-foot drop into this flatter area. And that flat area looked like a perfect spot to camp. I was all excited. I set up camp. I get a fire going. I'm sitting there. I'm cooking SpaghettiOs on, a, uh, you, you know, the old mess kits. Those little old mess kits where you, <laughs> you, you pour the SpaghettiOs into the mess kit frying pan or whatever and put it over the fire and it gets so damn hot that the half the spaghettios get stuck to the bottom of the frying pan um that's uh that's how i camped back then you know it worked out and that's what i'm doing and i get that going and put the fire out and crawl into the tent and it starts raining it starts raining pretty hard in some areas in the desert where you don't think about rain and moisture very often because it doesn't rain very often well in this case it came out of nowhere and it was a really bad downpour i mean it was the kind that like when you stick you, you kind of walk outside in it and it almost feels like you're drowning because there's so much water coming down it was one of those kind of rainstorms well i was noticing as i'm laying there in my tent it's a pretty good little tent but uh i was noticing that water was starting to kind of penetrate on the floor because it was pooling up behind me and so i thought okay I'll run over to my car and grab my shovel and dig a little trench out behind this to, to kind of help divert the water so it's not coming into my tent. So I jump out of the tent, put my, put my boots on, and go running up to my car. And I've got my flashlight. And I grab the shovel out of the back, the hatchback, the forward escort. And I go walking back down there as, in a, as I'm shining the light. What was my camp spot was like this flowing river as it as if it had been there the whole time my tent is moving around like crazy the water's like three inches deep at this point and it's it's just filling up this this where i'd ended up camping was like this drainage and all the water coming down was all flowing into this drainage creating a flash flood it was at this point i heard the low rumble and i go running down to my tent I didn't know what was going on. All I knew is all of a sudden my tent was about to get taken away in a river. So I grabbed the tent. This I had one of those little uh, camp, or, or I'm sorry, Coleman coolers that had already been taken away by this, this creek that was forming. 
I grabbed my tent and I had to yank on it because I had my sleeping bag and other gear inside of it and they, I had staked it down. And so I had to like pull really hard and I pulled the stakes out and I, I grabbed the tent and I went running back up to the bank and set it up there because I didn't want to lose that tent. That was a cool tent. Um, when I got the tent back up, I looked back down and this rumble was getting louder and louder and louder. And all of a sudden, as if you ever been to the beach at the ocean and you see the white water come in underneath a wave it looked like that in my flashlight as that approached it where I was camped and where I was just previously sleeping not 15 minutes before this giant rush of water came down and it would had if I'd have been standing at my camp fire the pit where the, I had the fire and I was cooking spaghettios that water would have been more than chest deep at this point. You see, in a, in, a, in a desert, especially like a sandstone kind of country that you find real common in southern Utah and northern Arizona, what, what happens is all that water comes down and it does not go into the ground. See, it just it flows and it goes downhill and it all collects into these drainages. And then you have what is called a flash flood. That's how a lot of these canyons are formed down there. Uh, point being, had I not noticed that water and gotten out of my tent to go get my shovel, I must have been living right because God was watching out for me. That flash flood would have got me in my tent and I would have been taken away. And I would not be here behind this microphone talking to you right now. And this is something that happens. And it happens, I think, more often than people give it uh, credit. A flash flood is a very, very dangerous situation. So the point to this story and, and kind of the, the, the moral of the story, so to speak, is when we're picking out camp spots, if you're in those kind of areas, those arid desert areas especially, never, never camp in, a bot in the bottom of a drainage, no matter how enticing that flat camp spot looks. It is my hope <laughs> that that story saves somebody down the road, okay? Uh, the other thing to keep in mind when you're, uh, just in terms of basic safety, again, these are like the big things that stick out in my mind. Uh, gas appliances in a trailer or a tent. Don't use them um, in a tent, obviously, but they have, they have they do market some of these heaters and, and things like that that are okay for a tent. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of them. I'm, I'm more of a fan of learn how to layer and bring very warm sleeping bags and extra blankets and keep yourself off the ground if, if you need heat, especially in a tent. I'm in, uh, I was in the Marines. I don't know if I've mentioned that on this episode um, or not for a lot of you new listeners out there, but I, I spent about five years in the Marine Corps Infantry. And one of the things that we did was we went to Bridgeport, California for what is called Winter Survival School. And we're up there and it's, uh, gosh, there's like three, four feet of snow and we're up in the, uh, doing this training and we're all staying in tents. Well, this lieutenant, the uh, had set up his tent and put the little heater, or I'm sorry, the stove that they give, you know, you know, it's almost like a, an older version of, uh, you know, like a jet boil that we use today. If you don't know what a jet boil is and you're, you're a backpacker or you're a tent camper or something along those lines, do yourself a favor and get you a jet boil. Um, and they don't pay me to say that. I just, I'm a huge fan, but, but it's like the old, you know, just the old little Coleman single burner kind of gas stoves. Uh, back in the day, it was white gas. Now it's mostly they're all propane. Um, and in this case, it was propane. Well, this Marine had, and who is a lieutenant, by the way, supposed to know better than this, uh, woke up in the middle of the night 
um, with a severe, severe headache and poked his head out the tent and started throwing up because he had poisoned himself by running this stove as a heater inside of his tent. If you are in a trailer, oh, let me get back to that real quick. If that Marine would not have woken up uh, with that headache to throw up, he would have died. That's that's carbon monoxide poisoning. Um, it can happen quick and it can happen without any smell. It can happen to anybody. Uh, I don't care if you're even trying to ventilate by opening the zipper a little bit. Don't ever do an open flame kind of heater in a tent for many different reasons. But carbon monoxide poisoning is a, is a real thing and you guys should know about it. If you're in a trailer, make sure you have carbon monoxide detectors because your fridge runs off of propane. Uh, your heater will run off a of propane. Uh, water heater will usually run off a of propane. Any of these things, um, if if along the gas line, any of those fail, if there is a failure point in your heat exchanger in your heater or anything along those lines, your trailer can quickly fill with carbon monoxide and kill everybody in it. It's a poisonous gas. I'm sure everybody listening knows exactly what I'm talking about when we're talking about carbon monoxide. So make sure you have those detectors in your RV uh, no matter, I don't care if that thing is brand spanking new, there can be faulty lines or faulty heat exchangers or faulty anything. And also don't try to heat your trailer with a stove, um, you know, like the cooktop stove or the oven or anything like that. It's just a really bad idea. Carbon monoxide is a very dangerous thing. So um, I think that's it for my my safety stuff. So uh, hopefully that helps you guys and, and keeps you safer out there for sure. Let's move into some camp cooking, just some hot tips different things, uh, cooking. I like, Oh, before I forget, I'll tell you a little, uh, I'll give you a tip when you're going for multiple days and you're worried about ice melting in your cooler. There's a couple things you could do. First of all, the obvious, right? Keep your cooler in the shade. The other thing that you can do is take moving blankets. Moving blankets are excellent insulators. Put your cooler in the shade and wrap a moving blanket around it. If you've got Extra moving blankets, wrap two or three around it. You will be surprised at how long your ice will stay ice in your coolers when you do it that way. As an added bonus, if you are in a trailer and you have a refrigerator with a freezer in your trailer, you got to drink water. And usually what people do is they bring those plastic water bottles up because um, I will tell you, I do not drink. I don't care if your trailer's brand new. Don't drink the water in your trailer, man. Um... My, my brother-in-law works at an RV dealership is like, uh, he's like a technician for RVs, right? And he's, he has on many occasions had a, a brand new RV trailer where he is finding this black sludge, slimy, gooey crap inside the freshwater tank. Um, I know that they have these tablets and stuff that sanitizes these tanks that you could put down there, but I never, I never recommend or nor do I drink the water in my RV trailer tank because of uh, that very reason because those tablets are got they've got nothing on that sludge that my brother-in-law is finding it's nasty 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 stuff um, so bring water bottles to drink or fill up other containers and, and bring that to drink that's that's what I recommend uh, I don't even cook coffee out of the water with the water that is strictly for washing my hands and doing dishes and uh, things like that, flushing toilets, whatever. But if you do have the RV and you've got a refrigerator with a freezer in it, you take your water bottles that you haven't drank yet, throw them in the freezer overnight, let them freeze. And as those freeze, throw them in your cooler and they will slowly melt and become drinkable. And as you do that, replace 
with other water bottles in the freezer and just keep that continually going and you will be surprised at how much a frozen water bottle will help keep your cooler nice and ice cold for your cooling enjoyment. All right. Um, let's wrap this up. I didn't realize I was going so long on a couple of last topics here. And this is all going to be centered around basic camping courtesy because this is something that drives me nuts. And I know it drives a lot of other people nuts. So we're going to, that's what I'll do. I'll wrap, I'll kind of bring this to a close by talking some basic camping courtesy and ethics and things like that. And I'll leave you with my favorite camping breakfast recipe that only you as listeners will ever hear. And I'm hoping that uh, you use the honor system and don't share it with anyone. No, I'm just kidding about that. I don't care if you share it. Uh, I don't have a patent on it, but it's really good stuff. Um, and so I'll, I'll leave you with these two items, uh, camping courtesy. Let's talk about camping courtesy, camping too close to others. That is, uh, one of those things that gets under my skin because if you're anything like me, the purpose of going camping is to be out there and secluded and away from people and in nature and not having to deal with neighbors and not having to deal with traffic, not having to deal with any of the kind of stuff that we try to escape to when we go out in the woods, right? Does anybody disagree with that? I don't know if anybody will disagree with that, but somebody might. When you are choosing a spot on, in the national forest, again, we're not talking about designated campgrounds. You're kind of just stuck with neighbors at, at somewhere like that. But uh, when you're going into the national forest, primitive dry camping, don't don't be the guy. Don't be the don't be the person, I should say, that pulls your trailer within like a couple hundred yards of somebody else's camp or even closer. I've had people pull up like 50 yards away. In fact, one time we had this big group and this is when my wife and I we were younger and we go camping with these big groups of people and we were a rowdy bunch. We stayed up late and had um adult beverages flowing by the campfire. We were a rowdy, rowdy bunch. We played music, all that kind of stuff. Now, these out-of-staters pull up one day, and they, they're like 70 yards from us, and they set up their little camp, you know, their uh, you know, older folks, and all of a sudden, uh, we've got about 2 o'clock in the morning, they come strolling into our camp and asking us to be quiet. Well, here's the thing, pal. I'm camping. You chose to camp this close to me, and I am not in a campground that has a 10 o'clock rule. No, we will not be quiet. So keep that in mind. When you're choosing a spot, try to respect other people's privacy. Try to respect other people's privacy and and not camp right on top of them. Go Get as far away from people as you can. You'll, you'll thank me for that too, by the way. You'll thank me for that. There's a lot of issues that can arise, whether it's noise or let's say both sets of camps bring up their dogs and the dogs, for some reason or other, or other, they don't like each other and they start fighting. That's something you're going to have to deal with the, the entire time you're there. It's just not a fun situation for anybody. So keep your distance. Respect people's privacy. Respect the distance. Respect the fact that we're out there trying to be away from people. Because that's what it's about. That's what it is about. Not that I hate people. <laughs> I certainly don't. I mean, look, I, I'm a pretty social guy. I do a podcast and and I, I love being around people. But when I'm camping, the, the purpose is, is the seclusion and the enjoyment of the wildlife and the enjoyment of the wild lands. And that's that's the point of being, being out there. So don't camp up in my business. <laughs> and I won't camp up in your business. 
another ethic thing that needs to be talked about from the, the specific to some of the areas I've been camping the last uh, 10 or so years at is reserving your spot unattended, um, leaving your trailer unattended. Just as a behavioral standpoint, that's kind of rude behavior. You, you, it is actually against the law on national forest ground to go up and park your trailer and leave it unattended so that you can reserve it for the weekend. It's also messed up because there's some people that they actually take the time off of work. Let's say you, you pull your trailer up there on a Sunday night so that you can be back the following Friday night and have your spot. It's messed up. Um, and I know in like the areas that I camp up here in North Idaho, uh, I, I, I've been told they're going to really enforce this, but, uh, you go up there and leave your trailer on a Sunday night and then you, you go back and go to work and all that kind of stuff. You're there during the week. Uh, a, you're, you're taking a big risk because there's a lot of people that are going to mess up your stuff and steal your stuff and break into your trailer. I wouldn't do that, uh, personally, but that's not why I wouldn't do it. Then you have somebody that actually has been looking forward to their once a summer camping trip that took off work and they're coming up on a Tuesday and they're all excited. They got everybody loaded up. They want to come up and find a really good spot. And then, and then they find out some jackass has left their trailer there unattended for a week. That's, that's messed up. That, that is that is not a first-come, first-served basis kind of situation. And I don't care who's out there moaning and whining at me for bringing this point up, but it is messed up. And I, I think you're a jerk if you're one of those people that goes and leaves your stupid trailer up in a parking spot uh, and, and, and think that you own that public land. This is public land. Don't leave your stuff. It's not only illegal, it's just rude. Uh, coming into somebody's camp. Guys, when you are camping... And let's say there is a camping spot on the river um, and they it's occupied. Somebody's got that little area and they're down playing on the river. Well, you want to play on the river too. This is not Daytona Beach, Florida. In the National Forest, it is really not okay and it is not considered good etiquette to park and walk through somebody's camp and join them on the river. Again, we're going back to this seclusion thing. That is just a kind of a courtesy. Uh, don't walk through people's camps. Uh, and uh, the biggest pet peeve I have is not cleaning up your camp when you leave. When you are done camping, it is time to clean. It is time to clean. If you don't let your camp get super messy, this isn't a big deal. But a couple things that I've noticed um, that people don't seem to realize like canned foods, you know, those cans that like, let, you know, you, you bring up some canned food. I, I mentioned SpaghettiOs earlier <laughs> when I was young. That's what I'd take. Those cans don't burn. I don't know if you know this or not. They, they do not burn. Don't please don't put them in the fire. Tinfoil doesn't really burn. It takes a lot of heat to break that stuff down. Glass doesn't burn. Um, I always recommend uh, if you like beer, um, I, I, I prefer personally, I prefer bottled beer. But when I'm camping, I take canned beer because for two reasons. A, it keeps glass and and that kind of uh, hazardous material or whatever out of the camp spot uh, at all times. I don't have the chance of breaking it. Uh, and, and B, the uh, space you save with canned beer is a lot better. This is just a, a an extra tip on top of the cleaning up your camp kind of thing that I'm talking about here. But canned beer will pack better in a cooler. And when you're done, you can smash it down and it'll pack better in your garbage sacks. So... You'll save a lot of room by by drinking canned beer, even though I 
prefer bottled personally. Hopefully that helps. Anyways, getting back to cleaning up your camp. Um, what some of the trends I've been seeing, uh, I guess trends is the wrong way. Is, uh, one of the patterns I've been seeing lately is people bringing up these little plastic porta johns and leaving them. Um, and they leave toilet paper all over the place, used toilet paper. They leave cans and uh, bottles in old fire rings and just think that, you know, their mama's going to come up and clean up after them. They leave garbage and junk all over, scattered around the camp spot. Guys, that is another jackass move. Pardon my French, but that is a jackass move. That camp should be cleaner when you leave than when you showed up. It is, there is no maid service up there. This, you're not going to the Hilton. Nobody's coming to clean up behind you. You need to pick up every little thing. When we're done camping, me, my wife, and my girls, we get in like a line and we walk the entire camp spot uh, in, in like this, you know, it looks like we're in like a battle line or something, <laughs> but we're walking the entire spot, picking up every little teeny piece of human trash that we could find. I don't care if it's a little bubble gum wrapper or a toothpick, we're picking it up. We don't leave any trash. And I would expect other people to do that too, because we need to respect these areas. This is national forest. It's a privilege. We can use this. It's our public land and leaving these things, a disastrous mess for the forest service to clean up is what makes the forest service close those areas down to camping. So keep that in mind. Please clean up your camp spots. Okay. Enough of the lectures. You guys, <laughs> whoever's still with me after I uh, balled out uh, people reserving spots and uh, coming through your camp and parking too close and cleaning up and all that kind of stuff, if you're still here, I, uh, I'm going to reward you with the mighty breakfast burrito that I invented years ago on a very cold, very difficult deer hunt that I was on in the high country of central Utah uh, that I still use today all over Idaho. This, my friends, is what I call heart attack. You're going to find out why I call this breakfast burrito the heart attack. This is not something you want to eat every day. And if you're one of those people that is very strict about eating, you know, only organic and gluten-free and, and overly healthy all the time, let me tell you something. You got to lighten up a little bit every once in a while. Have something a little unhealthy, unless you have some kind of health aversion to it. This is a breakfast that I, I only cook it like once per trip because it's that unhealthy. I feel like if you if you overindulge on this, it would give you a heart attack. Hence the name heart attack. Okay, so here's what you do. Ingredients are as follows. You uh, Have you ever seen those dehydrated hash browns that you get at the grocery store or, or Costco or whatever? They come in those little, they look like the little milk containers you used to get in the cafeteria at school uh, for school lunch. Uh, they, they come in those little cartons. You take two of those cartons and you put them on the griddle and brown those hash browns up. At the same time, you're simultaneously browning up uh, some country sausage. And that is going to be kind of a personal preference in terms of if you want like a spicier sausage or whatever. We use the country sausage. Brown those two and then mix them together. Kind of set those over in, in a low heat area on the griddle. And the next thing you're going to brown up is one can of corned beef hash. Now, there's a lot of people that don't like corned beef hash. Don't sweat it. Don't 
skip this step. It, 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 it's a critical step to the ensemble that is the Heart Attack Breakfast Burrito. So if you don't like it individually, trust me, you'll like it in this. So don't skip the corned beef hash. Uh, don't be a sissy. Put it in there. Heat it up. Mix it in with the country sausage and the browned hash browns. As you are cooking the hash browns, by the way, I didn't add this point, you are to put one stick of butter, an entire stick of butter, into those hash browns as they're cooking. That's an important step. I think you're starting to see why I call it heart attack. Scoot all that over. You've got you've got it all mixed together, right? You've got it all mixed right there. You've got the sausage, you've got the hash brown, stick of butter, and corned beef hash. One can, just one can. Next, what you're going to do is you're going to uh, scramble about 12 eggs, about a dozen eggs. You're going to scramble them all together. And I like to cook those separately. And then once they're cooked, uh, just a just a basic scramble. Again, take it all over to this big pile of stuff you got going on over here to the left and uh, mix it all together. Mix it all together. The eggs, the hash browns, the stick of butter, corned beef hash, one can, and a pound of country sausage. Now, once that part is done, you've mixed it together, you're gonna want to add lightly some sea salt and some Montreal steak seasoning. I know, don't skip these steps. some, Some of you may be cringing, I know. But that's okay. Once that is done, open two cans of country sausage gravy mix. You guys know what I'm talking about? You get the canned gravy. It's like the same gravy you use on a biscuit and gravy. The sausage gravy mix. Two cans, pour it all over the food. And then mix it all together and let it simmer on a low heat for, I don't know, five minutes or so. You don't need to cook it too long, but you just want to make sure that gravy gets nice and hot. It's all mixed together, right? This nice artery clogging breakfast is almost ready. Because at that point, you put a ton of shredded Mexican cheese. When I say Mexican, I mean that, you know, like the taco cheese. Uh, uh, I, I don't know what it's called. I know what it looks like, but it's just shredded cheese, finely shredded cheese. You put a ton of it on, on top. You know, let it all melt. Then at that point, it start, it's time to start making it into a burrito. You take your tortilla and heat it up on the griddle and throw some sour cream and maybe some salsa or whatever kind of fixings you want and make a burrito out of what I just told you to cook. That is called heart attack. You'll thank me later. Now, this pairs very well with a cowboy mimosa and a cowboy mimosa is an excellent breakfast drink. All this is is pulp-free orange juice about a quarter of the way up to a red solo cup okay only about 25 percent of that cup is full with orange juice the rest is an ice cold Coors light out of a can that you just take off the ice pour it in there let the bubble settle enjoy your breakfast burrito and your cowboy mimosa Okay, folks, that is going to conclude this episode of the Western Huntsman Podcast. As a bonus episode, before I sign off here, I do want to tell you guys just real quick who makes this show possible. And let's start with Phelps Game Calls. If you are into elk hunting, deer hunting, bear hunting, predator hunting, any kind of hunting out there and need some game calls, jump on phelpsgamecalls.com and use promo code HUNTSMAN10 for 10% off. 
Hoffman Boots is the boot of choice for the Western Huntsman. I love these boots. I will never switch the boot company that I am most fond of, and that is Hoffman Boots. Use promo code HUNTSMAN10, all caps lock, for 10% off if you jump on HoffmanBoots.com. We got Scree gear. Scree is extreme mountain gear. The camo of choice right here on this platform because this is the camo that you can get. It's high-end technical hunting patterns that are designed for the harshest of conditions. It'll keep you warm. It'll keep you dry. It's the best stuff out there without breaking the bank. Again, promo code is the Western Huntsman for 15% off and free shipping. Last but not least, Tacticam. I love my Tacticam equipment. If you are into filming your hunt or fishing trips or just filming anything in general, the most easiest, the most usable little camera out there for 4G, or I'm sorry, 4G recording is going to be that Tacticam 5.0. It's a great little camera, camera, super easy to use. It gets great footage. Check it out at thewesternhuntsman.com forward slash gear, and you can get you a Tacticam right there. Part of that money is donated towards wildlife conservation and uh, pro hunting organizations in general. So if you are interested, interested in that, hopefully you guys will check that out. Thanks again for tuning in guys. Uh, I sure appreciate you, you hanging in there during this entire episode. I really hope you got something out of it. Uh, I, th- I think that, uh, if you, if you, if you apply a lot of the stuff that we, uh, taught in this episode, you're going to get a lot more enjoyment and a lot more fun out of your camping trip. So that my friends is how I'm going to sign it off. Have a great summer with your camping season and get out there with the family get out there with kiddos and make some really good memories check us out on instagram at the western huntsman guys we will see you next time you made it all the way to the end Thank you so much for tuning into the show. We sure appreciate your support. This is Jim Huntsman signing off and reminding you to check us out at Instagram at The Western Huntsman and on Facebook at The Western Huntsman. And you can also check out the website at thewesternhuntsman.com. Thanks again. We'll see you guys next time. Stay Western, and I'll see you on the mountain.